Hey, what are you doing Monday, November 4th? Want to write a Blazor app with me? Attend my Blazor app workshop online. In just one day, we'll write a complete server-side Blazor PWA app with Entity Framework Core, API controllers, components, SignalR, ASP.NET Core identity, and user management using Visual Studio 2019. We're going to be using Twitch. So sign up online right now at blazor.appvnext.com. That's blazor.appvnext.com. Are you struggling to replicate the bugs and performance issues customers are reporting? Plug Raygun into your web and mobile apps right now and diagnose problems in minutes rather than hours. Kiss goodbye to having to dig through log files and relying on frustrated users to report issues. Make your software development life so much easier using Raygun's error, crash, and performance monitoring tools. Every software team can create flawless software experiences for their customers with Raygun. Try it free today at raygun.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Kemp. And uh, we recorded this way back in uh, September, on September the 6th, Mm -hmm. with Mr. Scott Hunter. And we've been sitting on it, as we do sometimes, to make sure that it doesn't pre-release unofficially. Let the the truth come out, but then uh, I think I like our analysis and conversations about it, too. Right. And also know that, you know, our analysis is 20 days old. So <laughs> we only know what Mr. Hunter tells us. Yes. <laughs> but before we can talk to Scott, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man, what do you got? All right. Well, this came through uh, medium.com, the mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joel Hewlin pointed out to me, and it's an article about... Um, Ambient noise generators for creative work. It's the best ambient noise generators. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and he sort of thought, well, you know, I'm into this music to Kobai focus stuff. Which is, again, meant to be used ambiently, really. Yeah, I mean, it's not ambient noise, it's ambient music. But but, um, so... I just want to read a paragraph here from this article that says, a 2012 study from the Journal of Consumer Research found that, quote, a moderate level of background noise enhances creativity. But just as importantly, the study found that when participants listened to louder ambient noise, they spent less time on their given tasks. Mm. Researchers say this indicates reduced information processing, which would be counterproductive to most creatives' goals. And I wonder... Do you ever have a do you ever have a neighbor who just wanted to be a jerk and put their speakers in their windows and just blasted bad music towards your house just because they didn't like you or something? No. But I get what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, try to write any code, you know, with Motley Crue. Right. Just I, I actually think Achy Breaky Heart would be harder, but okay. <laughs> yeah, actually there's a whole list of songs I could quote. <laughs> But that's actually going on in my in my uh, neighborhood. No kidding. For the last few weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. It started with this neighbor um, across the street diagonally, who uh, 
got divorced or whatever and has a boyfriend. The boyfriend doesn't live there, but the boyfriend has somehow convinced her to put speakers in the windows and crank music all the time. And our neighbors, you know, on our side of the street are just like livid about it. So we have this. No kidding. Well, there are laws, right? I mean, you have noise laws. There are noise laws, but get this, the cops didn't even know what they were. Oh, great. So my neighbor actually went to the town, got the ordinance, gave it to the cops, and was like, oh, that's what that is. Now go enforce this. Now go enforce this, yeah. Yeah. But it is really true. Like, if there's just some, you know, try to write code with just like, going on, it's just not happening. Or listening to .NET Rocks. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got to say, you know, I've been doing a lot of work on the book up at the Coast Place, which means I always have the sound of the ocean, beautiful. which I think is a pretty good ambient noise. It's beautiful. So yeah, that's perfect. Maybe it's part of what really, it, it, it apparently it works, right? According to this article, like this is a thing. It's a thing. Yep. Yeah. Can't argue with you, brother. I certainly feel that way. Yeah. Well, that's what I got. Uh, who's talking to us today, Mr. Campbell? Grabbed a comment off of show 1634 from May of 2019. With one Scott Hunter, when we talked about .NET Core 3, back when it was still under development. This show actually came out during Build, and they were talking about the Build announcements related to Core 3. And uh, this is also when they announced uh, that C-Sharp 8 was only going to be a part of Core because of certain restrictions, complications, and the things they were doing in C-Sharp 8, such as nullable reference types. There's a bunch of other reasons. Uh, and uh, not a trivial thing. It just sort of spoke to this progression forward. Uh, and the comments on the show were really positive. I mean, even even if it is a bit concerning for folks that are still on uh, the um, the classic framework, uh, you know, it's not like anything's going away here. This particular comment comes from Stefan, who says, "Wow, that was a proper .NET Rocks show." And most of them, you know, as implied, are improper. <laughs> that is the implication, isn't it? It certainly. Well, is. you know, you and I have talked about for some time now that that the .NET Rocks is really about .NET developers right. and there is a broader scope of things like accessibility and, and and devops and so forth that i think .net developers really need to be involved in sure. not just .net and we like to have those but, conversations within the context of .net so that they know uh, what we're being talking .net about developers yeah. absolutely that being said once in a while we get to just talk about .net and 1634 was one of those shows yep uh and Stefan goes on to say, I am very happy and excited about the future direction of .NET beyond .NET Core 3, as outlined by Scott. And I had to laugh out loud when hearing Richard's reaction to Electron, which I'm sure, you know, <laughs> yeah. I said something along the lines of, you know, consuming way too much memory and, and uh, you know, becoming the, this necessary plague. Uh, he fully agrees. He says, the memory footprint and proliferation of Electron-based apps has caused me some inconvenience. Four of the applications that are part of my daily development workflow are Electron-based, and he lists them as Julia Pro slash Juno, VS Code, the Azure Storage Explorer, and Azure Data Studio. And so I would point out that at least three of those Electron apps are from Microsoft. Hmm. Uh, and every one of them thinks it's entitled to all of my memory. <laughs> I, I actually have to keep track of how many of these apps are already running and close one before starting another. I love that, how an app can feel entitled. Yes. Yes. Uh, how much memory does your Electron app want? All More. of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I got to think, if it's part of your workflow to use 
for electron based apps like i i gotta i want to look at your task manager man like holy man that's got to be something that's at least a gig each sounds like sounds like work stop well plus you think about your it's your workflow so it's running for hours and that's the thing with electron apps is the longer they go looking at you slack yeah the longer they go (laughs) Anyway, Stefan, uh, yeah, we, we're with you. And I, the good news, of course, is that Electron is owned by Microsoft. Not that it hasn't always been an open source project, so it doesn't matter either way. So I got to think, I got to hope, I, I, I hold it in my heart of hearts. There's some really <laughs> smart people looking seriously at what it's going to take to make Electron more efficient. Because it's not going away. It's an awesome solution to a bunch of problems. Right. Except for that whole memory thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you, speaking of ambient music. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. Or on Facebook, we publish every show there. And if you comment on that show and I read it, then we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. I'm bringing desktop back. Yeah. <laughs> Those Windows 32 apps don't know how to act. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What is that? Uh, ask your daughter. Uh, okay. Okay, well, anyway, let's bring on... Uh, oh, you know, before we bring on Scott, I just want to tell you to follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Rich Campbell. He's at Carl Franklin. Wait a minute. Switch that. Reverse it. Reverse it. <laughs> I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. I have no joke. Just just tweet us. Tell us, tell us we're okay. Tweet us. Tell us we're not crazy. Scott Hunter is the Director of Program Management on the .NET team at Microsoft. His team builds .NET Framework, .NET Core, ASP.NET, Entity Framework, the Managed Languages, Web, and .NET Tooling. In a word, all the stuff. Welcome back, Scott. All the .NETs. All the .NETs. This is the job you always wanted, isn't it, Scott? Like you, you, You got pulled into Microsoft to be involved in .NET, and now you're in charge of it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> Just being awesome. Just saying. I, uh, I, I joined uh, Microsoft in 2007, uh, and I started working in the ASP.NET team. Uh, and we were working on uh, web forms at the time, and we were just just starting to build um, ASP.NET BC 1.0 in that era. Um, yeah, kind of our first tipping into the open source space. That was the the, uh, the the recruiting of the Ninja Army. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Scott Hanselman came out of that Ninja Army. Uh, Phil Hack came out of that Ninja Army. Mm-hmm. And Rob Connery came out of that Ninja Army. Yeah, right. I also, I tend to throw guys like Glenn Block in there. And, uh, you know, they're just a rem- they're all the folks that really had open source, like seriously embedded in them already. And we're just trying to figure out how to work in Microsoft with that system. I, I went through a moment of panic because I, I was new to the company and I'm just learning the, you know, the, even though I was a .NET customer before I joined Microsoft, um, I knew who, you know, all the, you know, the big people were in the .NET community that, that kind of talked a lot and, and you heard, heard their names a whole bunch. And I remember seeing this plan and I'm like, we're not going to have a .NET community left because we're going to take them all and hire them all. And right. uh, <laughs> there was there was a moment of panic in my mind. I'm like, we need to be, make some more people out there because um, this plan that Ninja Army was actually just like let's let's go hire them all. And uh, but luckily there's there was plenty of more .NET ninjas that uh, appeared. They stepped to, up to fill the void. 
No, you made you made more of them effectively. I, I look at the the wave of cloud developer advocates as something very similar. It seemed like they hired Microsoft has hired all sorts of cloud centric folks from throughout the ecosystem to the point where you're like, is there anybody left? But it seems to just make more. Hmm. Yeah, cloud plus languages. I mean, it's like whoever is a who are the best JavaScript people, who are the best Python people, who are the best Java people. Um, and then, you know, wire all that to cloud. It was, it, 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 it you're right. It, it feels like the second wave, um, of that exact same thing that happened in the 2008 timeframe. Yeah. Well, and this week is a significant milestone in that wave, isn't it? Oh yes. Um, I mean, there's the, you know, the whole data core three is kind of, uh, uh, to a bunch of us is the culmination of, um, I remember actually sitting down with Phil Hack, um, Scott Hanselman, we had hired Damien Edwards, and we all kind of sat together and we were we were just kind of, you know, at, at the point in time, we didn't have a lot of control of power, um, you know, .NET all up, but we're like, you know, hey, we're going to make this thing fully open source and cross-platform one day. I, I remember us, you know, sitting there saying that was, that was, you know, you always, you always kind of think of what's the dream, what's the best outcome you could ever get to. Um, and, uh, it was all of us talking about that and, and, uh, you know, it really started com- kind of coming to culmination in 2014 when we announced .NET Core, um, you know, we shipped the first version in 2016 and, you know, typical Microsoft, uh, this is version three, so it's gotta be the best, but, uh, you know, it's always, always fun to, uh, to think about that. In fact, uh, all four of those people, uh, you know, three, three plus me. We got together um, after we had gotten uh, some of the .NET Core stuff out the door, and we had a celebration dinner uh, about, hey, who would have ever thought that uh, us dreaming in 2008 would turn into, you know, .NET Core in uh, 2016. So, um, super happy about that, and super happy to announce some of the new stuff this week. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's kind of start from the. Uh, we did some cool demos in the in the .NET Conf keynote. And I thought I would talk about the journey of those demos because it, it kind of tells the .NET story that we have today. So we, um, you know, you start off with C Sharp. So, uh, you know, .NET Core 3 ships with C Sharp 8. Um, and it has a bunch of cool features in it. Um, two of my favorites that, that we talked about in the, in the keynote were uh, Nullable. And Nullable is a feature that will take a while to actually go through the ecosystem. Um, and, and the, the premise behind nullable is, uh, most of us today, when we write code, we don't do null checks in all the places that we should. Um, we just call a method, expect an object to come back, uh, use that object and, and move on. And the end result of that is, uh, you know, the app crashes at some random point with a null ref- reference. Exception. We've all seen those. Um, and nullable is some tech that we built that lets the compiler actually warn you and give you errors if you don't do the right checks. Um, so we talked about a little bit about nullable. Null reference exception is like the bane of object-oriented programming, isn't it? And all the functional people are always talking about, ah, we don't have to do null checks because everything's everything's uh, immutable, right? Exactly. And and I was going to say, even in when we look at all the crashes that happen in .NET, I mean, a lot of them are <laughs> null reference exceptions. I believe we did we did analysis before we, we built this feature and, and it showed that that was the most common crash. Um, but another cool feature is async streams. And this is being able to, you know, we, we added async await um, 
many versions ago. Uh, 4.5, I think, was when it RTM'd. And, uh, but we never had a version of, uh, of I enumerable, uh, that worked, uh, with that. And so, um, that's a, that's a feature that come, kind of comes into this. And the way we, w- w- the way I, I, I just kind of want to go through a, a story here. Um, so one of the things we wanted to show at .NET Conf is the .NET is awesome for building microservices. And, uh, a bunch of the tech that's actually in .NET Core is all around microservices. And so... Uh, we have this new technology called a worker service. Um, and this, this, you know, when you hear this, it's kind of like, duh. Uh, a worker service is some code that starts up and then it waits for something to tell it to go away and then it shuts down. Uh, think of a, a Windows service or in the, in the Linux world, uh, System D uh, would be the things that you think about this. And we never had a great way of building. We you always could build these in .NET Core, but we didn't help um, and so with .NET Core 3, there's a new template in VS and in uh, uh, the CLI called a worker service. And uh, a worker service will just boot up, run some initial, initialization, and then kind of do some, do some work until it's told to stop. Now, what makes this, this template really cool is you can actually add a NuGet package, and it becomes a Windows service. You can add wow. a different NuGet package, and it becomes a Linux service. Huh. So super easy to take uh, a .NET Core app and turn it into a Windows service or a Linux service. What about cloud services? Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to talk about that. Well, I'm sure you are. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, so, so the uh, so as part of this demo, what we thought is let's let's go build a microservice, and uh, in this particular case, it's going to be a worker service. And what that worker service is going to do is it's going to sit there and run in a loop, and it's going to get it's going to call uh, a weather API. It's going to get that weather data. And it's going to, um, and so we've got this thing that sits in a loop and 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 calls a, a weather weather API and you and you couldn't just call it weather API directly because it's rate limited, which means you're only allowed to call it X number of times, uh, you know, per hour or per minute. Um, and so this microservice slowly kind of grinds and and makes those calls and and uh, stores that data. That's great, um, but I want to talk to that thing, and so to talk to it. Let's let's go to the next step. And another piece of tech that we added in .NET Core three is uh, gRPC. And so, what we found over time is you know, a lot of developers still love that WCF style contract based RPC. You know, hey, I I want to call a method and 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 get this chunk of data back. I don't want to parse JSON, convert JSON. I just want to want to call my native stuff and have this this contract. So. We then took that that worker and we added a gRPC endpoint to it, um, where now it's it, it's sitting in a loop, getting weather data, doing the service part of itself. But there's a way that a third party can call into it and 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 ask for some of that data to get it back. So we add gRPC to that, um, and we've got good tooling in Visual Studio for this. And with, with gRPC, you write this proto file which describes what your API looks like, um, and then you can reference that. Or, or, or add a reference to that in, in the tools, and we'll build the, cl- the, the class library to talk to that. So we'll build you the, the goop uh, to make it easy to call that API once, you, once you've uh, uh, created that gRPC. And so the first part of what we did is we, we basically built that service, and then we put that service up in Azure Kubernetes, um, AKS, so to answer uh, Carl's question before. It's, what about a cloud service? 
well, of course, we'll take that exact worker service we just built and we'll shove it in the cloud. And so that talks about a bunch of new .NET worker service, uh, the gRPC for doing that, that rich type bound uh, RPC-based uh, programming model, um, all on top of .NET Core. And we're actually using that async stream feature as well, where um, if you're calling that gRPC, you can leave it open and uh, um, we can push updates to it. So great, step one of that. Now you mentioned, Carl, something cool. You said the desktop is back. We're bringing the desktop back. Yeah. Um, so of course we had to bring the desktop. Back. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's weird. We live in a very web-centric world, but when I look at the way people use Visual Studio today, we have millions of people every month in the product working on desktop apps. So I know everybody's in the web, but there's lots of desktop left. Well, and they're not, and they're not going anywhere, right? Lots of people maintaining those apps in various forms. Like they in, and building new ones. Like, how many times have we had Billy Hollis on, and then the man is working as fast as he can building WPF-based apps? Yeah, well, the, the thing about the desktop stuff is, still, I think there's nothing as fast. I mean, you know, we've all built web apps. We've all built uh, Spy apps with Angular or React or Vue or whatever. Um, but I can build a WinForm app in about 10 seconds and add some stuff to it and have it going instantaneously. Um, and so we're bringing both WinForms and WPF into the core world. Obviously, they're Windows tech, so they're, it's Windows desktop. These don't run on Mac or Linux. Um, those, are, those are inherently Windows tech. We can't easily make them work outside of Windows. But we didn't just bring them to .NET Core. It wouldn't be enough to bring them to .NET Core. We want to make the experience even better. Um, and so we, we've done a bunch of cool things there for the first time ever. Uh, this is a .NET Core 3 feature. You can crack open the CS proj. Um, uh, that's the project file for a, a .NET Core project. And you can add a line th into that telling us, hey, I want this for the 64-bit Windows platform. And you can add another line saying, I want a single exit. And after you do that, if you run .NET Publish, the end result of that will be a single exe that contains the app, uh, .NET Core. And so it's completely self-contained. Everything needs, needs to run, run, run that application. And you can put that on any Windows machine uh, from Windows 7 all the way to Windows 10, and it will just work. You don't have to have .NET on the machine. You don't have to have .NET Core on the machine. You don't wow. have to have anything on the box. Um, completely self-contained. So a, a question is, are you only uh, linking in those modules of the .NET framework that it's used, using, or are you just throwing the whole framework kit and caboodle on that XE? By the, that's a great question. By default, we're going to throw the whole caboodle in there, which will end you in a, in a pretty big space. Um, but that said, we, are, we have a preview of some new tech. Hey, this is Carl. I do apologize for the bad Skype connection we had. Right here, Scott is trying to say we also have a preview of some new tech we built in. Uh, it's experimental at this stage, meaning that uh, I'm not going to call it RTM, but you can use it today, and it works pretty good. And if you turn the linker on, we will, own, we'll, we will link out all the parts of .NET Core that you're not using. This will typically wow. save, on an average app, about 50 to 60 megs will disappear from a desktop app uh, when you turn this feature on. Um, and so I'd love to get that down to even, even smaller. And we already, in the .NET 5 wave, we'll, we'll go even smaller than that. But uh, 
the linker's there. You, have, you add another line in your CS proj, and you can start linking. Uh, there are some negatives on linking. I mean, if you're using a reflection to load assemblies, where you're calling load assembly to load assemblies, um, the linker won't know that you're doing some of those things sometimes. Uh, but you can always manually reference something in your CS proj, which means the linker will not, not ever link it out. So I want to warn people that the linker is, you, you can try it, and it might work for you. You might have to do some work to actually keep your app running. Um, and we'll we'll continue to work in this space and make it even easier to, uh, for that to work. Um, another feature that, that we bring in as part of the linker as well is you can also ask us to take the assemblies of your app and uh, make them ready to run. Uh, ready to run is the newer generation of engine, uh, which is technology where we pre-compile uh, the assembly so it doesn't have to be jitted when it loads. And so you can take an app, a WinForm app, WPF app. Uh, you can turn the linker on to make it smaller. You can then add another line to it that says, make it ready to run, which means I want it to start fast. Um, and then you can add the other line, which is single exe, and you'll end up with a fast loading, uh, single exe, as small as we can get it uh, in, the, in the current wave. Fantastic. And is the is the incentive here just fast startup times? Like, why do people want this stuff compiled to Exe like this? Uh, the Exe thing uh, uh, comes down primarily. Let's think of one of the challenges of .NET Framework. Um, you build a desktop application on .NET Framework, let's say four point seven or four point eight, right? Um, and then uh, we we as part of the Windows update in November, we fix some bug. And then suddenly your application just stops working. Right. And, and that's because you're depending on, you didn't know that that, you know, we were going to fix a bug and that bug was going to affect your application. And now you're in a broken state. The, the Although, whole point. Can I be running thing, side by side? I can yeah, be still that, running this, that old this, version. This is side by side, but the, the, this is, this is doing, you know, .NET framework is not side by side. There can only be one on the machine. There technically right. two, you can have .NET core or, or .NET framework. 3.5 and .NET 4.x both be on the machine at the same time, um, but that's that that's it. Some of that's because of size requirements and stuff like that. Those are those are big frameworks. Um, so the single exe solves the problem of having to have your IT department put a various flavors of .NET Core on the machine. Just right, make it into a single self-contained contained thing. It it gives you that that uh, protection across that from uh, the side by side aspect, not being broken by an update. Um, but it does, I, I'm going to be careful though, it does put the security onus back on you. If we fix a, a security bug in .NET Core, you'd have to republish your single exe file, you know, application, because there's no way for me to patch something that contains .NET Core inside of itself. Right. So if, the, if a vulnerability is found in the .NET framework, you've got that vulnerability in your app until you get the later bits, test it, and recompile it. And republish it, correct? Right. But at least your app doesn't just break and fail in weird ways that nobody expects. Yeah, right. and it, it seems like the auto update kind of uh, story would be a lot easier too. Yeah, well, there is an auto update story as well. Um, our wow. in the in the in the .NET Core three wave, it's not perfect, um, but there's an there's a technology in Windows called MSIX, um, and MSIX does com does come with an auto update mechanism. So if you you can take your .NET Core desktop application, uh, and, and uh, there is tooling in Visual Studio to make an MSIX. As I said, it's a little rough right now. Um, but if you run through that tooling, it will then 
create an MSIX, which can then can be put into the Windows Store. Um, and then you'll get that auto-update functionality, which is, means if somebody installs that from the corporate store um, or the public store, if you update that app in the store, next time the user, you know, the user's app will automatically update on their desktop. So we would counter that the solution to this, this update problem is to use a technology like MSDX to update the application uh, for the customer so they don't have to go and re-download the application manually. Well, Scott, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring platform. Datadog automatically correlates logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your .NET applications. Plus, the service map automatically plots the flow of requests across your application architecture so you can understand dependencies and investigate bottlenecks. Visit dd.netrocks.com to try these features in your .NET environment with a free 14-day trial of Datadog and get yourself a free Datadog t-shirt. And we're back. I'm Carl Franklin. That's Richard Campbell. And that's Scott Hunter, the .NET guy. And we're talking about .NET Core 3. We were talking desktop before the break and uh, the auto-update features using MSIX. And uh, it, it seems like Desktop is back. I mean, as you said, you know, this is a area that's been neglected for a long, long time. And I don't say neglected, but, you know, there hasn't been as much innovation as there has been on the web side and certainly the cloud side. And um, how are how is the uh, the desktop scenario working alongside the cloud? Pretty good. I mean, as I said, I think with uh, some of those features we talked about, being able to make single exes, being able to use, an, you know, MSIX to do some auto-update, that gets you into a, a semi-cloudy aspect. Uh, you know, but I would also say the I'll throw another uh, another flavor of something we announced at uh, uh, .NET Conf as well, which is uh, there's another another uh, piece of tech called App Center. Um, and App Center is some tech we've been using for years uh, to let you um, look at mobile apps and see how they're used. And for the first time ever, we've actually enabled this technology for desktop apps now. And so I'll, I'll throw the scenario at you. Uh, your company's building a desktop application. It's complicated. It's got a lot of screens inside of it. And as a developer, you know, where should you work? Well, I'd recommend you take App Center, uh, install App Center into your application, and then you'll start getting telemetry telling you which screens custom, the, the end users are actually using. So then you can go, oh, for the first time ever, I built this complicated app with tons of menus and tons of screens. Now I know where users are actually using the product. So we're going to give you the same analytics that you would get in the web um, in a desktop application. Nice. I think this is a big, a big win as well because, you know, that's one of the nice things about the web is you throw something like Google Analytics on your, on your site and you've got pretty good data of who's hitting the page, when they're hitting the page, how often they're hitting the page. Um, and we want to bring that same telemetry into... Uh, not just web and, and mobile, but to desktop as well. And that's that's uh, one of our announcements at uh, .NET Conf. But it does require an external connection to the cloud, right? Like it does. If you, it does. Because I don't, I not, I don't know that you have any numbers around this because it, it's kind of hard to figure out. But it's like, how many apps do you know of that live behind a firewall and just don't actually have access outward? I have no data uh, that, that tells me what that is. Yeah. Um, but I, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I, one of my jobs is to go around the, the world and visit customers and, and those customers do exist. 
Um, I was at a, at a, at a customer in Europe a, a couple months ago and, uh, they were actually having some trouble with visual studio and visual studio sends telemetry to us. And right. because they had policies like that, I'm like, well, I never would have, I've never seen any of your, your crashes because, uh, your firewall prevents you from seeing the crashes. And I'm, so we had to show them how to manually send us, uh, dumps, uh, when they're having visual studio crashes. As opposed to just, I mean, somebody went out of their way to turn that off firewall wise like it seems like an awful lot of effort for telemetry that actually would help them the day you know we told them we're like you know we we spent the the issue they were running into was an issue we've been working on for for a while and uh but we didn't see their telemetry and so it it uh it it hurt our ability to fix the product you know a lot of folks think of telemetry as being a negative thing telemetry is actually in many many cases it's a good thing because um that lets us know you know, how many crashes are happening in Visual Studio, if it's running out of memory, if it's slow mm-hmm. to type, slow to open a project. Um, we actually analyze that, t- that data every week. We have a weekly meeting uh, with, the, uh, with Julia Lucen, the, the CVP of, of Developer Division, where we look at that data. Uh, and that data helps us drive, you know, where we invest in to try to, try to make the product better um, every week. Well, and the same thing for people building their own apps, right? Like, to, to you have all these applications rather than waiting for someone to complain to be using the the, the VS App Center uh, reporting tools so that you are automatically getting reports of problems. Like, it's all the same thing, really. Telemetry, good. Yeah, I, exactly. That's that's why I'm excited about this. We've actually we're asking people for a while. It's like we want it for desktop. We want it for desktop. We want it for desktop. And so they're bringing it for desktop. Another feature that's really cool in app center is, um, you know, let's say we've identified that Carl, you know, Carl is using the product in a weird way and is, he's breaking the desktop. Every day. Sounds like me. Uh, it's kind of, <laughs> he does kind of Carl's that. MO. I know that guy. <laughs> uh, I can use I, another feature of app center is I could, if I build a beta version, I can send the beta version only to Carl. Nice. And get separate logging for it. Yep. It's like, hey, I, see, I know Carl crashes it all the time. So, Carl, I'm going to give you access to a new version, um, but not update my entire enterprise. Only Carl sure. gets a new version. Right. Um, and we see that we fix Carl's issue. And then we push the issue. I mean, we, we push the new version to all of the customers. And so there's a, there's a right. whole bunch of cool stuff. Um, and just watch the .NET Conf keynote if you want to see us demo this. Yeah, I also think that this, I've certainly run into personalities, people who who not only have that sort of meticulous mindset that they're good at finding problems in software and software tends to break for them, and that they kind of, like, when you treat them correctly, like I handle the psychological aspects, like, they feel valued that you address their issues and that you push special versions to them, and as a consequence, make the software better. Like, I love that you're helping me tend to those people without going way out of the normal workflow. Yeah. As I said, I'm, I'm super excited about it. Um, let's talk about one or two more things before we run out of time. Cause there's, there's sure. uh, there's so much more. The list um, is long. The, the next thing we did is we built a, a, a app using Xamarin forms, um, uh, using live reload, which is one of the new features we announced a, a few, I think a month or so ago where you can basically, uh, as you as you work in the tool, the emulator is running next to you, and you see the emulator update in real time as you're making changes. So you're not looking for the the designer to uh, or the code to actually reflect the UI, but it's actually it's changing dynamically in the actual emulator as you code, which is amazing. So we're showing uh, 
we, we, we built a, a, a mobile version uh, using Android of that exact same application uh, using the same calls uh, that updates as, as, as mobile. But then it gets, it gets really cool next. The next thing we want to do is we want to talk about Blazor. Uh, so, so Blazor is um, this really new cool tech that we have in .NET. And the way I like to think about it is, you know, if, if you're a web developer today, if you want to build a spa application, uh, uh, an app, a web app that looks like feels very modern-y, you've got to go use a spa framework, whether it's Angular, React, or Vue, uh, or, or something else that you roll yourself. But the way I like to think about Blazor is with Blazor, you just build a .NET-based web application, and it's a spa by default. You don't have to think about JavaScript. You don't have to think about Webpack or other tools like that. You just write a regular web app the same way that you always have, and it's now a spy app. Now, it's not just a, a normal spy app because normal spy apps, as I said, they, they bring a web framework. With Blazor, the default mode in Blazor, which we call server-side Blazor, we don't actually send a huge JavaScript framework down to your web browser when you open the app. All that happens is um, what, 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 the way the tech kind of works is I'm interacting with the screen. I press a button. And when I press that button in the web application, you know, it, and some kind of action fires. And typically in a web app, it would redraw the screen. Uh, in a spy app, it would use JavaScript not to redraw the whole screen. But in the case of Blazor, what actually happens is we'll send that request back down to the server uh, on a signal R pipe. The server will then rerun the page on the server. And it will calculate the delta between the previous page and the current page and just send the delta back. So there's, there's two cool things that come out of this. Number one is uh, when I run this fault Blazor app, the whole app comes down in like four or 500K, not megs, K. And then when I make a, a change on the screen, um, all that's actually coming across the wire is that delta. So it could be like in the case of one of the, like running a counter or something like that, it ends up being just a few bytes. Um, and so the tech allows you to take any, you know, build any web app in .NET and have it be a spa, but it's a very lightweight spa. And that, I, I think that's, that's, that's a really cool aspect of it. Now, we don't want to stop there. And so even though we just RTM'd Blazor 1.0 server side, uh, we also ship with this a preview of what we call client-side Blazor. And this is where um, we actually utilize the client. We use a technology called WebAssembly. Uh, WebAssembly runs in all the modern browsers, um, so it, it's not dependent on any browser. And in that this particular case, instead of actually firing the code down to the server, having the server do a diff, we instead run all the code on the client. So you know, we we actually your app becomes a little bit bigger because we're actually gonna you're gonna watch if you're if you run the debugger tools in a browser, you'll see .NET assemblies kind of coming across the wire. Uh, uh, to the client side, and we're running your .NET code, or the C-sharp code is running on the client. Um, the reasons you want to do this, it lets you build a PWA, a disconnected app. This app doesn't have to connect to the internet. It's, once it's loaded and running, it's got all the code there. It doesn't have to make calls to any backend it can, um, but it can be self-contained and, and run everything on the client. Um, and so the cool thing about Blazor is uh, we're, we're trying to write it in such a way that you can switch you could, you could start server side and decide to move to client side and hopefully not change your code a whole bunch of doing. Does a hybrid client and server side app make sense? 
Uh, for a hybrid app, you know, most web apps today are actually that hybrid app anyways. If you think of a, a, an Angular app, a React app, a Vue app, they're running a bunch of, of JavaScript in the client. But occasionally, they're making a call to the server to get some data. And so um, we definitely support that scenario where you actually have most of the app running in the client, but you're making API calls to the server. And, and, and at, at .NET Conf, I showed that demo that actually was a uh, a Blazor app that was making calls to that gRPC uh, service that we built earlier in the in the, uh, the gRPC weather service. Yeah, uh, so we're 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 kind of doing that hybrid version of the of, of the tech, but we we enable all all of those scenarios. But uh, I, I think the tech is just amazing. A plain C sharp programming model. Uh, all your apps are spy applications. And you can decide whether you want to run the code on the server or on the client. Uh, I'll give you an example of when the client actually matters a whole bunch. Uh, we have a website, uh, try.dot.dot.net that you can go to today. And if you go there, you can actually write C sharp in your browser. And when you press run, we actually run the code in the browser because we run it. That's a, that's a WebAssembly application, and so we're running the code uh, locally in the browser. So. The, the 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 blazer thing is amazing and it, it gives you this ability to build these really rich applications uh, dan roth's uh got a talk at dot com as well where he's got this app called blazing pizza where he builds a a pizza app that for all purposes looks like a desktop application but it's super small super fast um and so i think this will you know just modernize Net. Well, wanna... Scott, before you go on, before you go on, I want to ask you something about PWAs. Is there anything? Do you have to do anything in order to make a Blazor client side Blazor app a PWA, or does it automatically write all that manifest goo for you? It, it doesn't write all the manifest goo for you today. Um, in the next wave, um, you'll see us make these things first class. The reason we don't write the manifest up today, honestly, is the, the client side Blazor is in preview. Um, and we plan to, to hopefully get that into some kind of RTM state around build uh, next year. So uh, build would be May of, of 2020. So you can you can use it today. It works it works great today. A lot of people are using it, you know, in probably in production right now. Um, but we will actually solidify it. And I'll, I'll clarify a little bit more today. When you run a uh, a Blazor app uh, on client side, we aren't doing as much WebAssembly as we'd like to do. Uh, what we actually do is we actually run a, a .NET interpreter uh, on the WebAssembly side, meaning that uh, we're interpreting some of the code, so don't get the full performance of this. Um, what will happen as we go from .NET Conf to build next year is we will actually uh, use some tech called ahead-of-time compile, where what we will actually do, we will, when you build the app, we will generate the WASM code um, as part of the build step, which then means when the code runs uh, on the client, it would run at full performance because it's not interpreted. Um, and so that, that's, that's one of the reasons we're not calling it RTM today is we've not got that tech in there. Um, and um, that, that you're going to get uh, almost native performance, I hope, uh, in the browser, uh, you know, with that tech. And uh, that tech will come in uh, and in May of next year as part of build and uh, the PWA will be part of that as well. And likely there'll be one more flavor of this as well. 
which is, you know, we were talking about electron apps earlier uh, in the in the conversation. And we're going to likely give you the ability to take a Blazor app and run that inside of an electron shell. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and Jeff so Fritz. Write your C-sharp code and run it in, uh, in the Blazor host. Jeff Fritz was yes. hinting at that the other day as well. I think and, yeah, that's when Richard's mind exploded. Yeah. Well, I had to clean it up. Then you've got a desktop app that runs on Linux, Mac, and Windows. Um, you wrote it once. Um, it is web tech, so it doesn't look, it won't look, you know, as native as a native app on all those platforms. But it will be a cross-platform UI .NET app that pretty much runs anywhere. Um, and we 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 built a couple of prototypes of this over the last year or so, and it does perform better than some of the Node.js. Um, Electron apps. Um, in in many cases, that's just going to be because uh, you know we can be pre-compiled, and we can be uh, we don't we don't put any, as many files on disks. Uh, but we 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 took uh, Azure Storage Explorer and ported it partially to one of these things a while ago, and it was much faster than the uh, the Node.js based version of that. You know, the PWA story for me is really compelling. And just, you know, because I don't want anybody to get discouraged because Scott said they don't have, you know, the, uh, you know, all the making it easy for you. But PWA is really easy already. It's just not that difficult to do. It's a manifest file. It's a config file. And you just put some things in there and you can send your customers to your website and they go on a phone and then they, do you want to install this on your phone? Yes. And it's an app. It's that easy. Even, even windows desktop supports DBAs. You can install them yep. the same way there as well. So, uh, yeah. So we're going to give you that. That's, that's what, that's what's kind of cool about this tech is, you know, it's like, Hey, if you want to build an app that runs on desktop. Yeah. Gotcha. What about the client side blazer footprint size? Uh, footprint size uh, is our hope is to be in the four to five meg for the for the uh, WASM based uh, clients. And, and is that cacheable? So you sort of pay the penalty once, and then the app itself doesn't need doesn't require downloading it every time. Yes, and in fact, that's part of the PWA mechanism. Is you give it a manifest, manifest tells it what to cache. Um, right. And so you get a you get a cache scenario. You pay that price one time, and you're you're good to go. Um, I was gonna say. To complete my earlier thought, so I think as, as, as a .NET developer, we're, we're going to put you in a pretty good place. If you want to build a, a desktop app that runs on Windows, you got WinForms and WPF. Um, if you want to take the, that same app and, and run it on Android or iOS uh, or various other flavors, we've got the Xamarin Tech that does that. If you want to build an amazing, modern-looking web app, uh, you can do that with Blazor. Um, if you want to build a PWA uh You'll be able to do that with Blazor, uh, you know, in a in kind of a preview state uh, at at right now, and hopefully in an RTM state uh, at build next May. Um, if you want to wrap that same Blazor app in Electron and run it on Mac, Windows, Mac, and Linux, uh, we're going to enable you to do that. And the the final one, which is another demo that we showed at uh, at DynaConf, is you know we .NET now runs on a ton of different platforms, uh, and uh, so it enables a bunch of IoT scenarios. And so the final demo we did was we actually took the same weather app and uh, we had uh, Richard Lander um, show it on a, an LED light board 
uh, we could actually use the IoT version of the app running on like a, a Raspberry Pi, sending the data to this, this LED uh, app using a, uh, a library, and it would just, the weather would scroll across a, a LED light board. So just a different uh, output mechanism. Otherwise, the code's the same. Yeah. And so that's it's calling the same gRPC service, doing all the same tech. Um, and so, you know, it really is we're getting to a .NET Anywhere kind of scenario. I would say uh, you could even make a Blazor, server-side Blazor app a PWA if you wanted to. Is there any advantage to doing one or the other, client-side or server-side PWA? The the long term, yeah, I was going to say the the long term advantage would be the uh, the PWA client side might give you better perf and kind of sandboxed as well. So, but yeah, you can you can do all all these flavors. Um, crazy, all the choices. Yeah, all I the mean options. the server side Blazor isn't going to be any less performant than a MVC web API app, right? It's not. You're just going to make a call. You have yeah. to make a call to the the backend. Right. Sounds great, man. Did we miss anything? Uh, the only thing we missed, and uh, we, we also did show the uh, uh, the final piece of this, uh, we showed some of the model builder tech, which is some of the tech we have in ML.net. We're trying to find ways to make you know machine learning more accessible to more .NET developers. Um, and so um, we showed some sentiment analysis where we actually looked at some data with model builder. Model builder is a tool that uh, you pointed at some data uh, it'll choose the algorithm for you, and it'll write code for you as well. All the uh, to basically process the, the the data. And what what we showed the first preview of Model Builder May of this year at Build, um, and the Model Builder we have now um, just produces much much better code, and uh, it's the workflow is a lot better. So that was the main stuff that we hit. We hit C sharp eight, the microservices using Worker gRPC for uh, the rich RPC, contract-based APIs, WinForms, WPF, uh, Xamarin for, for mobile, Blazor for everything, machine learning and IoT. You know, that was kind of the .NET uh, 4.3 wave. Yeah, you know, I, I guess we should do some more shows around ML.NET just because it's one of those things where we're, I think we're all dealing with sort of AI fatigue. People talk about it all the time, but... Getting into real practical scenarios about this is where machine learning just becomes a part of your regular app, I think, is still is hard to grasp. Yeah, I, I the the challenge on machine learning is uh, explaining to a customer, you know, when when I see a customer to sit with them and go, you know, you have to train any machine learning stuff today, and most customers have, or most developers have data they don't even think that they have. Yeah. Like the the demo we showed at Build uh, two years ago or, or a year. ago, year or so ago was we showed what we called the github classifier and that was a, a bot we built that would actually take an issue and make sure it was in the right place in github so if you hey is this an asp.net issue or is it a networking issue or is it a desk issue and you know you don't think about it until you look at it and you go well really our developers have been moving these these issues to the right places for about three or four years now so we actually have tons of trained data um, and so we built a model based on all the issues that we had moved over the last, you know, from 2014 to like 2018. So four years with the data. Um, the reality is a, a lot of, a lot of developers have data, but have not thought about, Oh yeah, our company has been training data for a long time. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, anything we can do to make it easier to, to get to, we have a whole page 
that has a whole bunch of scenarios that you can actually just download samples for. Uh, just go to dot and click machine learning, and it'll take you to a, a machine learning page that has a whole pile of scenarios um, that we've pre-built for you. Wow, nice, cool, including ml.net. That's uh, Seth, right? Uh, ml.net is actually uh, some tech that we fe- that we actually had inside of Microsoft already called uh, TLC. Um, and what we did is we we basically. It was built for internal teams at Microsoft, and we basically have been cleaning the API up to make it easier to call it, um, and we re- rebranded it to ML.net. Uh, okay. But it's the same tech that power as Windows Hello. So if you unlock your laptop with your face, uh, you're running ML.net. If you uh, ever run PowerPoint and it recommends themes and stuff to you, you're running ML.net. So it's uh, it's it's tech that we've we've been using for years and years inside of Microsoft that we're just not giving away. To so a a grown up version of Clippy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Scott, uh, it's been great, and uh, thank you for sharing this with us. And I thank everybody for putting up with the lousy Skype connection. But uh, hopefully, you got the gist of what Scott is saying. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, and and I would love to get back on the show maybe in the ignite time from November, and we can talk about .NET. Let's do that for sure. All right, Scott, thank you very much. Thanks, guys. All right, we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm-